Welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we explore the big political stories of the moment. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. The latest crime statistics just released by, released by the police minister, Peggy Tele, indicate that despite government's promises to contain it, crime continues to escalate, posing a threat to the country and its people. Worryingly, crimes such as murder, robbery and rape are among those which have increased in the latest reporting period between October and December of last year. Joining us for this conversation are Gareth Newham, who's Head of Justice and Violence Prevention at the Institute for Security Studies, as well as Asanda Nguasheng, who's a political analyst. When people zone. And I quote, in two years' time, Eskim's problems will be a thing of the past. People won't even remember load shedding. Unquote. They put saliva on the paper. I'm in charge. That's why these fools are running around here. I'm in charge. And then they share that zone. Point of order, Chaperson. Order, Chaperson. Point of order, ruling party by must step aside within 30 days. No, I'm not going to apologize. He has no brains whatsoever. The NC president was sabotaged again yesterday. Well, sabotage, that can be This is not a Shakespeare. Welcome to the both of you. Hello, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Good to be here. Karen, shall I start with you? Uh, why do we have such high crime levels, which are still increasing? I mean, I was looking at the number of murders, for example, seven, more than 7,000, more than 7,500 murders in three months, up 10%. Yeah, um, I think it's important to note that uh, in the first 18 years of democracy from 1994, until 2012, murders dropped by more than half, by about 54%, uh, which is quite unusual. There are very few countries that have seen such big reductions in their murder rates over time. So I think the real challenge we had is that from 2012 onwards, every single year since then, we've seen an increase in the numbers of murders, except for uh, 2020, when we had the hard lockdown and most crime was disrupted in that period. But murder has increased by over 62% in terms of the numbers of murders that were that, uh, recorded in uh, 2012, which was around 15,500, to the over 25,000 murders that were recorded in the last financial year. And the murder rate, which is the numbers of murders per 100,000, which actually measures the risk or the chance of being murdered in a particular population, um, is increased by about 53%. So we were back where we were 20 years ago in about 2003, 2004. Um, there are many reasons why murders increase and why we're violent. Uh, the historical reasons, South Africa has a long history of violence in terms of state formation, colonialism, apartheid were all very brutal systems. Um, and we only ended those about 25, 26 years ago. We've got very high levels of inequality in our country. We have a high level of... Uh, normative violence, which people believe that the best way to solve problems often is to use violence, whether that's at a, a personal level in people's homes. Uh, so a lot of people still use corporate punishment. A lot of men still believe it's okay to hit their, their partners. And that if you need to solve a problem with another male, uh, that violence is one way to ensure that the problem is solved. So there's a sort of level of where violence has become relatively acceptable um, for many people in South Africa. But then, of course, what we're really concerned about as well, in addition to that, is criminal violence, where groups 
get together and then use violence in order to establish territory or dominance over their competitors, such as gangs or tax associations. Um, and we have a very high level of armed robberies where usually young men with firearms or knives use this weapon in order to steal from people in their homes, hijack cars and so forth. So there are very various reasons why this is the case. Um, mm. But when you look at the sort of international models what uh, that explains violence, most of the factors that contribute to violence occur in the South African context. Mm. 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 But but you know, uh, Gareth, you know, having said that, I'm looking at some of the of the incidents of, of violence that have been reported recently. You know, uh, like the shooting of a businesswoman and a bodyguard, uh, or the mass shootings. You know that that seem to be taking root in different parts of of, of the country. Now, if we if we try because you know in, in South Africa we like to like you know some people say we like to self-flagellate you know like uh, put ourselves down and say we're the worst in the world in this and the other and the other but when we look at our crime levels how bad are they in the global sense you know I mean we mentioned the the 7,500 plus uh, murders that, that, that are okay in, in, in three months but if we look at global trends or, the, or global statistics, how bad really are we? Are we like the murder capital of the world, as some people like to describe us? Well, there's no simple answer to that because, for example, most countries in Africa, many countries in other lower-income parts of the world, such as South uh, East Asia or uh, Central and South America don't, or even places like China, in fact, don't release their crime statistics or don't even have crime statistics. So we are really only ever comparing ourselves with uh, a relatively small proportion of the countries in the world that do keep crime uh, statistics, and most of those are quite highly developed nations or high-income countries. So we can't really know what the total global rate of crime is, but the estimates that are out there show that the international average is around seven murders per 100,000 people. Whereas in South Africa at the moment, our murder rate is about 46 murders per 100,000 people. So that certainly places us in one of the, uh, in the, one of the top countries in the world to have the highest murder rates. But as I say, it's very difficult mm. to, to get data from many other countries. But regardless, it is a very high numbers of murders and it is not acceptable. And I think our biggest worry is that it's been going up for the 11 years in a, without the government responding in a meaningful way to this problem. Um, mm. And until they do, we probably won't see any change soon. Mm. Asanda, I'd like for you to come in here. Gareth says there has not been a meaningful response from government. Now, if crime overall, you know, including murder and robbery and all the different categories, if overall crime is such a big problem in our society, why is it not center stage in our public and, and, and political discourse? It, it, is, it doesn't even seem to be an issue with any of the political parties, for example, you know, except as a side issue, kind of, when maybe somebody wants to criticize the police minister or the ANC, you know, showing them how they failed, etc. But it does not look like any of the public representatives have got it as, as top of mind. Um, I think that, you know, the, the answer to that lies in, in some of what Gareth said, um, that South Africa is an inherently violent society because of the past and because the past and, the and you know, the violence of the past continues to perpetuate itself 
in the daily lives of people in um, corporal punishment, etc., as has been said. I think that because violence is so normalized, political parties, because they are also South African uh, citizens who live in the state of normalized violence, don't always see it, uh, you know, as the crisis that it is. And I think that also there's there's kind of deeper issues like, for example, uh, the role that patriarchy plays in GBV, the ways in which, for example, our economics are structured such that um, we are a country that create jobs that uh, employ men. And we don't consider how women are going to be employed when we build big projects. And therefore, women end up being employed by men, essentially, by being married to, in a relationship with, or in a transactional sex relationship with. And so all of these things, when you consider the normalization of crime, is, uh, you know, the response of, of politicians is an indicator of the normative nature of violence in South Africa. And I think that, you know, we are also experiencing or part of a global society that is increasingly violent. Um, if you look at some of the reports, for example, coming out of Europe about the state of GBV that uh, women in Europe are experiencing and have experienced over their lifetime, the numbers are scary and the stories are sadly similar to some of the stories that we hear in South Africa. The main difference, however, between us and the rest of the world in my analysis, is the response of government. Our government does not, uh, you know, fund efforts to end crime enough. There isn't enough funding in terms of the budget. There isn't enough funding uh, in terms of making sure that we have more police on the ground. There also isn't enough funding for efforts towards social cohesion and, uh, and, and kind of social welfare beyond the grant system. Because Crime is a, you know, is a symptom of uh, socioeconomic conditions. And if you look at the crime stats, you'll see that a lot of crime is actually uh, people who know each other. So you're more likely to be murdered by somebody that you know. You're more likely to be raped by somebody that you know mm. than you are to be murdered or raped by a stranger, which means that the problem is actually beyond, uh, you know, the role that the police can play. We as a society are also not taking enough responsibility for our own relationships and our own engagement and the systems that keep us replicating this violence, right? And um, I think that, you know, we, we we while we do need to point the finger at government and government fails to fund, uh, the police fails to kind of ensure that once a criminal has been apprehended, that the criminal justice system takes, you know, takes course that dockets are not uh, going missing in court, we also need to take some blame as South Africans for our own complicit complicitness in the systems. And it doesn't help that, you know, um, our government is so corrupt because what happens is when you are a country that's led by a corrupt government, where people see big people, as it were, being able to get away with, with beating, with killing, with raping, with, um, you know, with basically eating millions, thousands, millions of rands 
then people start to believe, well, if that guy can get away with it, then I certainly can get away with it. Mm. And so if our politicians started acting more ethically, if our politicians started being less corrupt and being less accused of crime themselves, then we would definitely see a decrease in crime levels because ordinary members of society would understand that there is a high cost to pay if you do engage in in ways that are anti-society's values. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gareth, the, the point that, that Asanda is making, you know, about the w- without exculpating the state, the the role that individuals can play or should be playing uh, in, 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 in fighting crime, you know, how do we balance out? Because another person listening to that might think, oh, it's okay to beat up someone if we think in our locality, if we think that they are a burglar or a robber or whatever, or they're giving us a problem. It's okay to just beat them up or maybe even kill them kind of thing. How do we balance the civil involvement and support for the police and cooperation with the police against uh, the, the potential for vigilantism? Well, uh, you know, Asanda's right that we all have a role to play and we almost take responsibility for how we behave uh, towards others and play an active role in trying to prevent violence, be role models to our children that shows that you can resolve disputes or conflicts without using violence. But when you think about a society that needs to shift from a growing murder rate to one that's you know, either stabilizing or reducing, it would be much easier if we had a capable state that was trusted by the population. Uh, already we're looking at well over two, 1,200 murders as a result of vigilante action in South Africa every year, which shows that there are quite a few communities in quite large parts of South Africa where people don't believe that the criminal justice system will work for them. Um, we actually have a very large budget for the criminal justice system. It's over 140 billion rand annually at the moment. The police budget alone is 1.8 billion rand. There's 180, over well over 180,000 people working in the South African police service. Um, and we're not talking about a situation in which most South Africans are routinely violent or that most people go around committing murders, for example. The 25,000 murders that were recorded in the last financial year uh, and the over 7,000 in the last quarter that we have statistics for are not committed by even 7,000 people because there are mass murders where one or two people might kill uh, a number of people. Also, people who are either involved in organized assassinations or routinely getting into violent situations where they might murder people or or are routine groups of robbers, for example, will commit a number of murders until they are stopped. So we're, we're talking probably around um, at the moment about, you know, if you could get a focus on the 10,000 people who are the most causing most of the violence crime out of a population of 60 million, the police could reduce violence substantially, particularly murders, in a very relatively short period of time. So one of the questions we have on the on the government side is why can't the police with 108 billion rand budget currently and over 180,000 personnel and billions of rands of technology um, not identify those 10,000? That would make the biggest impact. And that's about public trust. And that's because one of the problems of our, our, our situation where the police and the government is not working well and is not trusted is that a source of violence comes from the police. The police themselves 
kill between three and 400 people a year. Uh, uh, there are thousands of cases of assault against police officials. And so, you know, the government itself has got to be capable. It's got to be a role model. It's got to say, if the government is not violent, then we have a, a way to play, uh, um, ensure that others aren't violent. And then, of course, it's not just the police. Um, there are many proven programs uh, that have been running in different African countries, such as Kenya and Uganda, that show that education uh, programs and interventions amongst primary school children or high school children that run for as little six weeks can make a massive difference in the way that young men and young boys see themselves, see women, and uh, will actually stop being violent or be a lot less violent. And that young women who go through these interventions are less likely to accept violence from their partners. So we, we tend to think of the solution being in the criminal justice system, and certainly an, an enhanced and better functioning criminal justice system will make a huge impact. But we have many other departments, such as education, health, social mm. development, that could be playing a much bigger role. And unfortunately, they don't see the role that they can play, and therefore they don't fund and implement programs that would reduce violence and prevent it from happening in the first place in our society. Mm. And, and the point that, that I was raising was, how do we encourage uh, citizen participation in crime fighting without uh, opening the door for vigilantism? Well, again, it's about trust. Um, when the when communities uh, see that is something that is going to be implemented in their community that is beneficial to them, and there's a relationship of trust between those that are trying to do this, um, and if it's a state, then you know they will work. They will work with people. I think what's happening is that because of the withdrawal of the state. Uh, I mean, many parts of South Africa and many communities don't see police as an option when they're victims of crime. So we've seen big reductions in people reporting crime. Um, and don't trust the sort of, you know, the schools, the, the the various state systems to operate. They tend to then either form their own groups, which operate outside of the law, and that's why we have a high level of vigilantism, but it also opens space for um, groups that are quite nefarious. These could be gangs, these could be criminal networks in various parts of uh, the country, business forums who have wealth and are then stepping into that void. So I think it's really, it's about a situation where we, the best possible way that we can deal with this problem is, is building the capability of the state. Um, and having a state that is trusted. Um, and that is obviously a big political question. It's mm. not an easy thing to do. But otherwise, uh, we're not going to see wholesale societal change to the scale that we need it because the, the biggest institution with 1.2 million employees is the state and they will have the biggest impact. So as much as we can all do a little bit, um, if we want to see big change, we're going to have to see mm. real efforts in trying to professionalize and improve the capability of the state generally. Mm. Asanda Gareth says we need to look uh, at the question of the capability of the state. You know, But do you see, apart from that, do you see a political will on, on the part of the of the state or of government uh, to confront the, the issue of crime in South Africa in a, in a decisive kind of way? I think there isn't political will. I mean, I've often said that, uh, you know, corruption is one of the biggest problems in South Africa precisely because it undermines everything else. And so, as I've said earlier, if you have, you know, the the African National Congress within NEC that is chock-a-block with uh, many, many people who were named in state capture, then it's very difficult to be tough on crime. It's very difficult to be ethical. It's very difficult to call out people who are not sort of abiding by society's rules when you yourself are breaking the rules. And so because our politicians as individuals and as members of political parties across the strata, by the way, because not just the ANC that's failing in this, because politicians often get away with 
crime, whether it's corruption or murder or rape or sexual harassment, then ordinary people look to this and see that they can do it too and they can get away with it. And so we will only get political will when we start redefining and rethinking what is the criteria for leadership in South African society and how do we ensure that the people who become leaders in our society at a political level are people who are ethical, people who are interested in seeing good being done and interested in ensuring that the rules that South Africa as a society has set for themselves are being followed by all, regardless of how much power you have, how much political connections you have, and and, and so on and so forth. And so I think that, you know, we 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 will not get any political will for as long as we have an institutionally corrupt uh, political party in power with also institutionally corrupt opposition parties who are not doing enough to turn the tide and to challenge government and in particular the executive when it comes to these issues. Mm. Gareth, you know, when you're looking at uh, the minister of police, for example, on the surface, he seems to be the one of the busiest ministers. Uh, like he pops up everywhere, you know, if there's a, especially when there's a major crime that's been committed, he'll always be there. He'll always be like uh, uh, front and center, you know, at the scene kind of thing. How much does A, his leadership style, but B, overall police leadership, how how much of a factor is it in deciding whether we, we succeed or fail in, in, in fighting crime in South Africa? Well, the Minister of Police is in a very important role in this regards because, in fact, the Constitution only really speaks about one particular minister, and that is the Minister of Police. It doesn't really refer to any other ministers. Um, and that was because at the time of the Constitution, it was recognized that there was a need to transform the police from a force that was a mistrusted by a vast majority of people doing apartheid, and that democracy as a foundation had to be built on the rule of law and trusting government. Um, and But I think what we've had in the past is this political interference. Police ministers interpret the constitutional mandate to what is, is to give directive to the police in a very operational, immediate way. So they tend to get involved in a lot of the operational decision making, where they should be tossed to who should be promoted, who should be transferred, a whole range of issues that should not be uh, undertaken or decisions made by a person who's not a police officer or not trained in policing. And so what we've seen is um, this, what the National Development Plan calls is a serial crisis of top, man of, of, of top management. Because for too many years, for, for pretty much 2000, year 2000 until 2017, none of the six uh, people who occupied the post of National Commission in that period was a trained operational police official. They were political appointees, and they would then make other uh, open new posts and promote people for political reasons and not for reasons to do with their policing skills and ability. So that top echelon of the South African Police Service has been highly um, interfered with. It consists of some very excellent women and men at you know level who are generals and brigadiers who are working under immensely difficult conditions. But we know from, for example, the Public Service Commission that one quarter of the top managers of the South African Police Service do not possess the minimum minimal qualifications to fulfill the functions of the post that they hold. And there have been too many people at that level be involved in corruption, be involved uh, in a range of problematic behavior, so that, that the top echelon can't work in a coherent way and utilize that massive budget in a way that is strategic and has the impact. And I think, although we, we can't fault Becky Tselia on going to visit 
victims of crime because that's he's a politician, but he also seems to be maybe distracting the police um, because he often put, you know has the national commissioner with him at all these meetings. The national commissioner should be at the at, at a head office with plans, looking on a daily basis what's going on with crown crime and what are the police in the different provinces and the different clusters doing to get on top of the various murder and robbery and rape cases and so forth. But if the national commissioner is not there and you have this discordant mm. top management echelon, it can't do that. So I think the minister's got to step back and see him or herself as mainly an o- executive oversight to make sure the police are held accountable, rather than being a cheerleader for the police and distracting them from what they should be doing. Mm. Just, just before we conclude, the, the other factor you know, that, that, that jumped out at me when I was looking at the, at the, at the stats is the use of firearms or the role of firearms you know, in, in many of the crimes, especially the murders. Uh, do, do we have a firearms problem in South Africa and how can it be dealt with, uh, uh, Gareth? Yes, we do have a, a firearm problem in the sense that there are far too many people that have firearms. Far too many firearms are lost every year. At the moment, it's around 9,000 firearms are lost every year. Last year, the police themselves lost around 700 firearms. So, you know, licensed firearms is the biggest pool from which illegal firearms, unlicensed firearms uh, occur. Um Although a vast majority of people don't have firearms, in fact. So we're looking at about maybe three, three and a half million licensed firearm owners out of a, you know, adult population of around 36, 38 million people. So a vast majority of people, 90, well over 90% do not possess firearms. But the problem is, is that um, we have a high level of crime. So people who do have firearms can be victimized, can lose these firearms. And of course, um, we haven't been able to have a highly functioning intelligence capability or firearm investigation capability in the police for some time. And so we're not recovering the number of firearms that we should be getting off the streets because there is definitely a link there. The more firearms in society, particularly in a society like South Africa, the higher the murders. And if we manage to reduce the the pool of firearms in society will have a far lower murder rate and a far safer society. Mm. Asanda, I, I just want to, you know, may, may, maybe as a, your, your concluding remarks in terms of, uh, and I know that you, you initially, you know, we, you, you know, earlier in the conversation, you said South Africa is itself a violent uh, country, you know, and criminal even, and that and our, our political parties are, in a sense, a product of that. But we have a government uh, in place that people vote for. Uh, do you see crime? I mean, we're going to elections next year. Uh, do you see crime becoming a a a factor, a, you know, in terms of uh, voter, in, in terms of swaying voter preferences in 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 our electoral system? Yeah, I mean, I think I think crime definitely is going to play a role in the way that uh, immigration, for example, played a role in the last elections and is probably going to play a role yet again. Um, I think that a lot of people in South Africa are tired of. Uh, living under conditions where, as has been said, they can't trust the police to arrive on time and they can't trust the politicians who are tasked with leadership to lead at the best of times. And so I think political parties that can kind of provide clear plans or a clear desire to deal with the issue of crime um, are going to definitely win and sway some votes. But I also think what, what's been interesting is that, uh, you know, you've got these independent camp- candidates that are going to be coming in. And that's also going to be another opportunity for new voices to come in 
and give their perspectives on uh, sort of these old problems. And what you're seeing is that with vigilantism, there seems to be, although it's it's obviously an, a negative thing and it does lead to sometimes innocent people being killed unnecessarily, there, there also seems, it does indicate that people are interested in figuring out ways to solve the problem and developing, uh, you know, community-based uh, solutions. And so what we might be able to see with independent candidates is that, you know, those policing, those local policing for, forums who have been busy with, uh, you know, vigilantism themselves might actually send some of their own to stand so that uh, they will know that the crimes of their community are going to be taken care of and, and are going to be taken um, seriously, which is going to be a very interesting, uh, which would be an interesting kind of contribution or an, a new way, I suppose, of thinking about crime and how to solve crime and who is responsible for solving crime and what the role of the community is. Mm. Well, it looks like that's all the time we have uh, for our conversation uh, this time round on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly. Uh, we'd like to thank our guests, Asanda Nwasheng, who's a political analyst, as well as Gareth Newham, who's the head of justice and violence prevention at the Institute for Security Studies. We appreciate your time. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country.